Welcome, beautiful people. This is Olga Peters, your host of the Montpelier Happy Hour, and so glad you can join us for this special rebroadcast of a May 2022 interview Emily Kornheiser and I did with journalist Anne Wallace Allen, where we discussed the Vermont tourist industry. Hope you enjoy. of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I am your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. This week, we are talking about the Vermont tourism economy, and listeners to the show will know that it's one of... Um, our favorites. We love digging into this one and all its stories. So joining me this week, of course, is regular contributor, Representative Emily Kornheiser, fresh from a a recently finished biennium. You're looking much more awake than I have seen you. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Olga. I don't know if I'd call myself fresh, but it is certainly recent off a new finished biennium. Good to see you. Good to see you too. And, um, also want to welcome to the show Anne Wallace Allen. She is a reporter for Seven Days out of Burlington. Um, that's where Seven Days is. That's not where you are. But we are so glad you can be joining us today, Anne. Thank you, Olga. It's so good to be here. So just for some of our listeners' um, edification, before we dive into the conversation, I went to the um, Agency of Commerce and Community Development's website and looked at some of the tourism and marketing numbers and data that they keep. And some of this I knew, some of it was it was new to me. Um, tourism is a $3 billion industry in Vermont, according to the ACCD. Supports about 30,000 jobs or 10% of the Vermont workforce. Um, one of the biggest industries in the state. And we welcome approximately um, or more than 13 million visitors every year. This was interesting to me because we're down in the ski area and Emily and I. And so I didn't realize summer is the busiest season as far as visitors go. And um, most of our visitors are from Massachusetts and then kind of counting down New York, Connecticut. And this was very funny to me. New Jersey and New Hampshire was both 7% of visitors. And I just found it very funny that New Jersey and New Hampshire would have the same amount of visitors. I don't know. That amused me. Um, so there's just kind of a very quick rundown on the the very top level numbers for the industry. Um, I would love to start with, with um, you, Emily, and just say, you know, as a lawmaker, when you're sitting in the state house and conversations come up around tourism, because it seems to hit almost every sector, you know, there's ag tourism, there's maple syrup, there's ski areas, there's outdoor recreation. um, There's the attracting remote workers, (laughs) (laughs) which is another fun one. What does the story sound like in the state house? Well, before I even answer that, I just want to say that with all due respect to the agency of commerce and community development, they, um, 
I think there's a range of ways you can interpret the data that they share and that they interpreted. You think? And their numbers might be a little bit larger than some other economic analysts might come up with. Well, I'm glad you said that because the reason I went to the state is the state puts a lot of effort into telling the tourism story and the visitor story. And so I think it's really great that we have that right off the bat. We're like, okay, here's a new discrepancy. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, and we can talk about sort of what, um, one of the ways we sort of talk about impacts on economy is sort of like what the magnifying effect or what the ripple Mm -hmm. effect of something is. And I think how far out you count the tourism economy and what that means for the jobs or the not jobs that come from it or the um, economic impacts that come from it are interesting. We also have um, the, between the first and the second highest rate of second homes or non-primary homes in the country. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, a large piece of Vermont's history Mm. And those folks are counted as tourists too. Mm-hmm. And some of them come here for, you know, the entire summer and live right. in Marlboro and their grandparents and their great grandparents have all come and lived in Marlboro and gone to the music festival and done whatever else they do. And then there's sort of, you know, the folks who have a condo or a condo equivalent at Mount Snow and come here, you know, mm-hmm. a few times a year or Airbnb their properties and come here once a year. So, um, but to actually answer your question, what it makes me think of is um, right out of college, I started a career in international development. And that was like pretty immediately post-Soviet, building post-Soviet economies. Mm. And um, sort of bringing, you know, newer, better capitalism all over the world. Fascinating way to start one's career. and. A big part of what I was involved in quite a few times was smaller countries of fairly remarkably well-educated folks um, having really intense global economic pressure to sort of save their economy or spark their economy through tourism. Mm -hmm. And there's been sort of various iterations of that globally over the last 40 years, 50 years. And, you know, we talk about ecotourism and now we're talking about agritourism and, you know, I think Italy does some agritourism to sort of, you know, spark their more rural areas. Certainly we do. And there's historical tourism, there's all those things, but it was this idea that essentially their post-Soviet economies of fairly educated folks would be saved by tourism, Mm -hmm. by having, by telling the story of their countries and having folks from all over the world flock in visit for a week or two, dump money into the economy and bail. And it was really interesting to meet these folks who often had graduate degrees, um, who had been sort of, you know, working for um, working in government most of their lives or um, as teachers or whatever it was, and sort of shifting their whole frame of being to um, be promoting themselves, basically be promoting this country that they live in and their story about who they were and what they were in a way that would be appealing to a stranger. And then also just sort of like learning the particular tricks of the trade that allow a person to work in say food service or hospitality, right? Like that really like deep subversion of um, self and needs, right? It's not, you know, in a normal workplace there's some degree of negotiation 
in an immediate customer service experience, there generally is, and it's generally sort of the customer's always right, right? Mm-hmm. And so that was this very interesting, and then, you know, I left that work, but as, as it's evolved, there's sort of been more and more and more research that this is not a way to save a developing economy. And economies need to be sort of developing from their like nascent skill set and their nascent um, human capital and social capital and even sort of, you know, physical and natural capital. And then coming to Vermont 20 years later, um, I mean, being in Vermont through the, off and on through that time, but like working in the Vermont economy to develop the Vermont economy as a legislator 20 years later and seeing that we're still telling that story here, that somehow we're going to be saved by these, you know, folks down the road coming in to throw their money into our pot. And what does that actually mean? And what does that look like? And what does that mean for Vermonters? And so those are my, that's sort of the conversation I go into the state house with. I have lots of thoughts about what happens in the state house, but we can get to that mm-hmm. later. How about for you, Anne? What, um, what's the story you hear around tourism and business? And is it a, is it a savior story like Emily was, was just sharing? Um, I agree that uh, with both of you that the statistics can be uh, viewed in a lot of different ways. And one of the things that they count is actually family visits. That's probably why there's so many visitors from New Hampshire. I'm sure there's other reasons too, but I, you know, often you hear that 40 or 30 to 50% of all tourism is people visiting their families. And then while they're in that other new place going to an event or something. So there, there definitely is an effort to, with most economic impact studies that are sponsored by um, somebody who's trying to promote their own industry, an effort to say that, you know, tourism is, as Emily put it, a savior. And I um, have also lived in the developing world and have seen that. And another thing that happens is that people sort of take one aspect of their culture and they they have to spin that into a story that is told over and over and over again until it almost becomes um, who they really are instead of what was just a small part, part of who they really are. I think another way that, um, one of the reasons that tourism has been viewed as a savior and as so many people are, have promoted over the years is because as we know, our population and our industry has moved to urban centers and it's left the rural areas saying, how are we gonna sustain ourselves? Especially as you know, farms merge and agriculture no longer supports people and tourism is the logical time honored centuries old way of taking rural areas and injecting some capital into them with the same consequences that there've always been. You know, it's, um, there's a supporting cast for the people from the wealthier areas who come and um, rent houses and eat in restaurants and go to cultural events. What was your other question? Um, when, when you're out uh, reporting on um, Vermont and its economy and its jobs, um, yeah, what are, what are the stories you're seeing? Like, I, you know, growing up in Wyndham County, with the Deerfield Valley is where I grew up, you know, like tourism was a sacred cow. You don't, you don't bash tourism because what if the visitors decide never to come back? Um, and um, so that's the story I kind of grew up with. So I'm, I'm, I was just curious about what else you're seeing um, and yeah, how it's I, shaping what you cover. Um, it's, I think for a lot of people, owning your own business, for many, many people, owning your own business is a dream. And they're willing to sacrifice a lot to do that. And a great way to do that is to own a restaurant or a cafe or a B&B. It's super um, 
risky in some ways. I mean, they go in and out of business and it's a ton of work, but I think for many people it's worth it. So I often meet people who are running small tourism businesses who are working 70 hours a week and the whole, a whole family's in there working, but they're really happy and that's what they want to be doing. And it's their, you know, it's their business. And so, you know, tourism is a, is supports that kind of story. And with its cyclical nature, these are people who have no summer of their own because they're working, but then they can take a few months off and they can, you know, spend the winter in Costa Rica or whatever. There's a lot of stories like that. Of course, the pandemic has absolutely changed everything and we can get to that later, but that has been one of the uh, tourism models that I've seen. And I lived in Mexico for nine months too, and it's kind of striking how similar that is, that whole model was there. And then of course, there's the other side of it. Uh, the skiers are a good example of this. They have a lot of sort of food service type jobs, lift operator jobs that don't pay very well. And again, that fits into some people's lives really well because they can work in the winter at ski areas and then they can work at the summer at whatever else. But it also means that there's a large population of people who aren't making very much money, um, who usually can't afford to live in the resort towns. And that raises a whole, not only a whole host of new problems, but also kind of a, in, we see this in ski areas all over the country where you end up with a town that has only second homeowners or uh, business owners and all of the the people who work in the businesses are living an hour away or are living in a house with 16 people in it. And I, I, that's something that I know um, Emily and her colleagues are trying to figure out in terms of like making affordable housing more available, but it's, um, it's a consequence of tourism for sure. And it doesn't just, you know, in those communities where folks are living in, um, or the folks who work in a community don't live in a community, it's not just that the community that they're working in is basically, you know, empty of people who are investing in it on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, in terms of volunteerism and government and all those things. It's also the community that people are leaving to go to work doesn't have folks who have spent enough hours in it to get it done. I think, you know, pre-pandemic working downtown in Brattleboro, there's such an incredibly vibrant interaction between folks who are living and working there and like volunteering there and going out for like it's just a fully living vibrant town where people both live and work it's a very different thing and I think one of the stories that we tell about Vermont and its volunteerism and its um, devotion to community and what makes it work and all of those things and essentially even part of what we sell to tourists is something that's only possible if people have time to really be anchored in their homes. Interesting. Uh, I, you know there's towns like Woodstock, which is half an hour away from Killington, but also is just a tourist destination in, in its own right, that have been really, really, really smart about trying to address that because they have <clears throat> a lot of their houses, like their village is dark at night because people from California own a house in the middle in the village and they're only there two weeks a year and the rest of the time it's, it's just um, either retired business executives or nobody walking around. And so they've taken, they have a local option tax, 1%, and they use that for an economic development fund that they have taken to improve their downtown to attract tourists, yes, but also to, to come up with ways to help provide housing options for regular people, people whose kids go to the school or, um, you know, firefighters, teachers, uh, things like that. And, but Woodstock is a town that has the means to do that. A lot of the small towns that are being emptied out don't for various reasons. Woodstock has a lot of very wealthy people. Somebody gave them half a million dollars just to start a fund to help people with their down payments on their homes, um, working people. Other towns 
So some some towns have are finding workarounds, but none of them are like truly sustainable in regular towns. I I think what um, my concern with tourism is on an economic level is we have towns that this is just my my term. Their economy is basically a mono economy that just like way back when, when you had the one mill or the one car plant and the factory store, it's, it's kind of that. And, and that lack of economic diversity just to me feels very fragile and, and very um, unsustainable. Um, I don't know if, if that's what anything you see in, in either of your realms, Anne and Emily. Well, it's, you know, I mean, the pandemic showed that for the whole world to see. And I think we did a lot to provide immediate support to everyone who was um, impacted by that. That immediate support took many different forms and certainly the immediate support that business owners received, um, I think was handed out a little bit more freely than unemployment insurance. Um, and unemployment insurance is can be quite complicated if you work in food service and have the unsteady hours and unsteady income that might come from that. I think two years ago, a year, I don't even remember when the pandemic started anymore, but in those early years, when we saw essentially that fragility writ large, I thought very hopefully that um, those lessons learned about what it means to be entirely dependent on this one path to um, stability would mean something and that we might then have a chance to sort of build our way out of it. But when people are in crisis, they don't wanna build their way to a new future for the most part. They actually just want everything to go back to the way it was. Mm -hmm. And so um, I haven't seen the kind of transitions that I was thinking would happen on sort of the recovery path. I, I think that some people did see when they were, when they left their, their service job or their tourism job that they had not really been enjoying it. And they realized that being away from it was an opportunity to try something new. I know that I talked to Etsy a couple months ago and like they, their website just boomed enormously in 2020 because a lot of people started doing their hobbies um, and making money at it. So for, I think that's why it is the hospitality sector that is saying the most that they're being limited by lack of employees. I mean, they're actually closing their businesses early and they're limiting their hours because they can't find people. And um, not coincidentally, those are the jobs where they have to um, deal with the public, not always a courteous public and where the pay has traditionally been low and also where hours have been very unpredictable, which makes it extremely difficult to arrange childcare. So I think that um, some people did take the crisis as an opportunity to find some other way to make a living. And I mean, that might lead to a permanent change. Another thing that has happened is that these hospitality businesses have had to raise their pay um, pretty significantly. And you know, for the people who want a flexible job or a part-time job or a seasonal job and are now being paid more of a, of a um, commensurate reward for doing that work, that has been, that could be a, a positive outcome of this as long as that continues. And I'm curious, this either, I'm curious, how do you feel um, 
the tourist industry or um, economy, however you want to say it, um, shapes policy, either at the local level or the state level? Oh, boy, where do we begin? Well, it's all tied together, but we live in a, a state filled with beautiful, unsullied green fields and um, farms. And those are the things that have been beloved by visitors since the 19th century. And I think that some of the uh, some of the state environmental policies and also tax policies reward uh, leaving land open, which I enjoy a lot. I think that tourism plays a role in Vermont's planning process. Vermont, the state of Vermont, like has emphasized density in town centers and has tried to discourage sprawl, which is better for the environment when it works out the way that it can. And I know that our state's sort of curb appeal to visitors has is in the back of people's minds when they're looking at how they want to structure and encourage development or discourage certain types of development. It's inseparable from our efforts to clean up Lake Champlain. I think people who live in Vermont and love the lake are want to clean the lake up for because it shouldn't be polluted. But I also think that Lake Champlain is kind of a jewel of the that region and is a huge draw for all kinds of visitors from Canada too. I mean, there's so there. I mean, you so much of our policy is tied to um, our image of ourselves as a, an agricultural state, as a rural state with traditional New Englandish town centers, and uh, you see that in so much of our policy making. Emily, did you want to say something? Yeah, you know, and it's interesting. There are different sort of flavors of the tourism that policy can promote or push. So there's, I really appreciate, Anne, how you highlighted the parallel. It's so interesting that I don't have to think like a million thoughts a minute anymore and like how much my brain has slowed down in the last week. So I'm trying to like even just grapple with what it means to have a slower brain right now. So excuse me. Um, <laughs> how it, sort of the a lot of the environmental work that we do and what environmental priorities went out are about sort of, we talk about a working landscape, but a working landscape and working lands, working lands and a working landscape can mean very, very different things. Mm -hmm. And um, the particular one that we choose to highlight and to invest in policy-wise is definitely the one that lines up with sort of the bucolic trademark Vermont vision. Even the fact that we are, you know, the emphasis on saving the dairy industry rather than transitioning the dairy industry is a lot about, you know, we, we have teams of researchers at UVM that actually, you know, research how much our dairy industry sort of makes Vermont as tourism rather than as dairy. And then there's the sort of the spirit from the ski hills. And when we were doing redistricting, I became very fascinated with just this idea that, so Stratton and Snow became one um, district in our last redistricting. Um, mm -hmm. That's the district that Laura Sibelia sits in now. And what it would mean to have sort of one less ski mountain representative in the mix. Yeah. And then Heidi Sherman, who represents Mount Snow, um, sorry, not Mount Snow, excuse me, Stowe, they rhyme, um, <laughs> who represents Stowe and has been, um, I'll even call her a vicious representative for Stowe, for good and for bad for that community, is stepping down and not running again. Mm -hmm. And so it's really going to be, it's very interesting to think about how the, 
the legacy and sort of the internal lobbying on behalf of the ski industry, which is a very, in some ways, very different industry than the more sort of scattered tourism that we might see in the kingdom or in the sort of the towns, the non-ski towns surrounding Brattleboro. And how that lines up with this really intense consolidation of the ski industry that like at this point, we can't even pretend that those dollars are going to Vermonters anymore for the most part. I mean, it's, and like that Vermonters can even afford to access those mountains. I mean, it's like, it's a full farce at this point. Those mountains are completely consolidated. The money is going out of state. The prices are going up. The parking prices are going up. Like there are very few Vermonters that can afford to ski regularly anymore. It's true. And so what that sort of pressure is, and it's not just, you know, those representatives, it's, there's entire, you know, there's chambers of commerce that surround it. There's downtown business associations that surround it. There's a really like significant network of lobbying energy that goes into continuing to tell that Vermont trademark story, both in terms of sort of what Vermont should look like, which lakes we should clean, you know, the pollutants, the water pollutants on the east side of the state are totally different than the ones on the west side of the state. And we only care about the ones on the west side of the state. It's, so it's this really interesting, it's this really interesting mix that sort of carries us forward when we, you know, even dared to talk about minimum wage laws that would encompass food service organizations and who sort of shows up for that. Mm-hmm. The policies that the chambers show up for and don't show up for is this really interesting mix mm-hmm. that regularly surprises me at how little emphasis it often contains about sort of manufacturing or other companies. Like it's really tourism interest interests for the most part by our, all of our chambers, um, including the bigger chambers. And that's sort of, that's also really interesting to me. And that can also mean that they like care about housing and like all of a sudden the Vermont Chamber of Commerce wants to like, they're my only ally in shutting down the short-term rentals. And so it's this, it's just like, it's a wild ride that we're all in, on that gets mixed up together into the state house. It's, it's very, it's true what you say about the ski areas. It's really striking how, how they have sort of drawn apart, the, the corporately owned ones have drawn apart from the regular Vermont tourism because a lot of, you know, Vermont is lucky in that we have fall, fall foliage all over the state. And so to some extent, our tourism is widely distributed all around the state. And it really is. You have people who are regular people driving here to check out the leaves. You have people renting camps and there's still, you know, affordable ways to come and visit Vermont and see the leaves and things like that. And, but it's true, the ski areas have kind of, they became corporately owned very quickly. We still have some local ones like Bolton and they, they don't even bother to return journalist calls. They're, you know, they're in other places. They're in British Columbia, they're in Colorado, and they are big businesses that are thinking of, who are sort of, um, bringing a very different way of doing business to the state. I, I don't know if you guys heard, but uh, Stowe is also doing high occupancy vehicles lanes for, um, it's not lanes, but this is what we had in DC. Like if you had three or more people in your car that you got parked for free and they're doing something like that too, as they try to struggle with the with the overcrowding in, in up in the, on the mountain road in Stowe. So it is kind of a very diverse industry. I you know, up in the Northeast Kingdom, it's a pretty modest industry. It's, it's, they, they do have a big ski area there, JP, because a lot of Canadians go there to ski, but it's not, it's very different from the Southern Vermont ski areas that draw New Yorkers and people from Massachusetts and New Jersey. There's a lot of camps. A lot of people go to Vermont to hunt and fish. 
there's a, it's just a kind of, it's, it's not quite the same thing that you're seeing in Burlington or the ski areas with a lot of food service jobs and a lot of kind of institutionalized service jobs, hospitality jobs, there's small inns and things like that. I, I think we should also talk about how short-term rentals fit in here because I definitely think we should. We actually, though, have to go to break so we can hear from some of our underwriters. Um, but yeah, when we come back, let's let's dig into that short-term rentals because that's a fascinating little can of worms all on its own. <laughs> so stay tuned, listeners. Uh, the Montpelier Happy Hour on WVW 107.7 L. second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. If you are just joining us, I am your host, Olga Peters, and I am speaking um, with Ann Wallace-Allen from Seven Days, as well as regular contributor, Representative Emily Kornheiser. We are talking about the Vermont tourism industry. And Emily, before we dive back into the tourism what do we need to remind our listeners of? Well, Olga, the views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests, and not the radio station, nor the TV station, nor any of our employers, friends, loved ones, or acquaintances. Thank you very much. So, Anne, during the break, you were, um, and I appreciate this because, you know, so much of my life has been in Southern Vermont that I, I realize I can, I can be, have kind of blinders on. And you were talking about how different um, tourism can be in different areas of the state. And I'd love if you would just share some of that perspective with us. When I, so I live in Northeastern Vermont, um, halfway between Montpelier and St. Johnsbury. And I spend a lot of time in the Northeast Kingdom. And when I go to Southern Vermont, I am struck by a lot of differences your tourism seems a little bit more uh, focused on ski area type visitors. Um, or um, There seems like there's a higher concentration of visitors from the urban areas who drive vehicles that stand out in Vermont. For example, they're not covered in dirt and mud like most Vermont ones are, or they dress differently and the shops reflect that. Of course, Manchester is an extreme example of that, but that is something that I see more of in Southern Vermont. We have pockets of that in Northern Vermont, but I think that our tourism is a little bit more diverse too, as I was talking about the camps and the hunting and this and that. And obviously in Burlington, there's a lot of visitors who might come for business reasons and then stay to do you know, cultural events. I, I talk to people like that um, often. And then UVM draws a ton of parents and families who might come to visit their kids and do things. So it's it's a little bit more, yeah, diverse in some parts of the state than others. And that might be what you're experiencing in Southern Vermont. It's definitely, there's there are cultural differences. Mm, fascinating. Yeah, no, there are definitely, you know, down here, there are days where the majority of the people in any business you go into won't be from here. And, you know, I was talking to colleagues about collecting signatures to get on the ballot and someone's like, why don't you go to your farmer's market? And I was like, well, I don't think that'll work. <laughs> um, so mm -hmm. 
or even, you know, my post office, you know, like most of the people that go past the post office are driving through from outlying towns. So we, you know, we have both, um, and what that means is that on any, you know, one of the things that I think is very beautiful about Vermont is that almost all of our communities are really incredibly socioeconomically integrated compared to almost anywhere else in the country. And even individual streets can be incredibly integrated with a mix of, you know, smaller stick homes, manufactured homes, McMansions, hippie, geodesic, whatever's, you know, it's like almost every road in Vermont has some, dirt road in Vermont has some mix of that. And that's an incredibly dynamic thing. What happens down here on our dirt roads is that half of those homes are often vacant mm. for various reasons. And that's sort of an interesting thing. What I've seen since the pandemic though, is it seems like that's happening more and more in certain communities in the kingdom. You mean second home ownership? Or um, the preciousness that's applied, that has been applied to my corner of Southeast Vermont, I um, have heard it more and more applied to the Northeast Kingdom. And the kind of businesses that we're able to support down here, which I, you know, like I grew up in New York, like I, you know, I grew up eating arugula and Romano and like all of these things, like I have... I have some fancy tastes and I appreciate that because of all the tourists coming here, a lot of fancy taste businesses are able to mm -hmm. you know, exist and I can shop there. But what I see happening in the kingdom is similar, you know, like there's some sort of like organic pasta CSA from like, you know, handmade organic pasta CSA. And there's just like all of these precious little businesses that seem super lovely. And I would love to, you know, be part of them. And I imagine that a lot of folks I know who live full time in the kingdom appreciate them being there, but they're not there for the locals really, or they're not there for, you know, the um, longer term locals. I think the one community in the kingdom that has done a pretty good job of <clears throat> positioning itself to grow with tourism is East Burke. Mm -hmm. They have the kingdom trails bicycle network. So they draw mountain bikers in and some local business owners have been pretty enterprising about building housing and creating housing. And um, <clears throat> they involved people in town from the beginning in growing and in shaping this, this nonprofit that was going to govern the trails. And they've also worked with the Burke Mountain Ski Area, which is also somewhat independently owned. It's, in, it's owned by Jay Peak. And so they've, so people, I've written about Burke a couple of times and I spend a lot of time there and I talk to people there and they feel, they don't feel like this is something that is being done to them. Yes, yeah. there are <clears throat> a lot of visitors, but they've had some control over saying, you know, what do we want to see happen here? Do we want to have a new road crossing put in the road that between our two country stores? Mm -hmm. um, what are we going to do about parking? Um, how much would we like to grow? And so it's it it it's been done in a way that it it hasn't been suffused with preciousness, really. It might be some a function of the people who go up and do gravel bike races. Um, they might be more interested in biking and drinking beer. There is a new microbrewery, the only one in Essex County, than they are in buying like super fancy cheese. I don't know, but so far it seems to be working pretty well for that community. It's you notice like all of these fancy bikes and people who, you know, with uh, with out of state license plates and things like that, but it, you don't have that same effect that you have in some of the Southern Vermont towns and in the ski towns here of um, 
crowds of people or of lines or things like that. And they're also being very conscious about growing sustainably and not getting too big for, for the area because they, they know they can't build new roads up there. They can't handle more than a certain amount of traffic. And I imagine it's also even different from say Craftsbury, which has, has had this historic summer home scene mm -hmm. that um, yes. creates a big cultural divide between the you know summer home people and the non-summer home people. I, I have to admit, um, I love amusement parks. Like, you know, amusement rides, love them. You know, the, the ship that would go like this and the roller coaster, oh God, love them so much. But I will admit that there are times I have felt in in my state that the state itself is a little bit of a theme park rather than a home. And I I wish I could be more uh, tangible about that feeling. It's And I don't know that I can always say why I feel that way, but I'm just bringing that up because I really appreciate this conversation and, and just hearing how different parts of the state, you know, how, how tourism is showing up differently in different parts of the state. Well, I think one piece that results from us sort of, you know, right at the beginning of the show, Anne, you talked about how we sort of sell ourselves to ourselves with the story that we've sort of perpetuated. And, you know, like Vermont's been doing this for a hundred years, at least. It's not, this it's is not really good at it. <laughs> um, and with whiteness, right. It's been, you know, we've been selling whiteness to white people um, for a long time, though we are trying to change that now. But I think one thing that results from it is that we wind up, and you know, I see the national media doing this about Vermont and also doing it about other rural places. It's not sort of specific to Vermont. But we wind up sort of selling the story about what a Vermonter is or who a Vermonter is um, that then comes home to roost. And so I, you know, when I was waiting table here when I was 20 and I remember folks coming in and being really like incredibly rude and dismissive um, and disrespectful to me. And then finding out that I was here for college and I was actually from where they were from. And all of a sudden, everything changed. Mm -hmm. And the fact that I was able to sort of code switch and could see their reaction to that um, told me so much about the stories that they were carrying when they showed up here. And that so many Vermonters are sort of experiencing um, just that one story, not the one that, you know, happened when they code switched. And I think the people, a lot of the people can sort of, you know, um, really make it work in some of the communities that are even more sort of extremely tourist than here um, in Brattleboro are, do do that code switching in order to sort of um, maintain their self-respect through the work. I don't think that's a, a Vermont phenomenon. I know because no. I went to school in New York that my classmates were kind of afraid to go to New Hampshire or even upstate New York. They were just afraid of, they were afraid they wouldn't get the right kind of bagel, which they wouldn't. <laughs> but they were also just afraid of people who looked different from them. And so that's, that's kind of just a cultural thing that, I mean, that's the case in the other countries I've lived in too, you know, mm -hmm. um, sort of the native people versus the visitors and the native people, uh, the visitors are conscious that they have more money and more opportunities in some ways. And that also makes them feel sort of vulnerable. Um, I don't, I don't, you know, one of the reasons that Vermont is such a diverse place in terms of thought 
And we see that in our policy and sort of in very progressive in many areas is because a lot of visitors came up here and loved it and found a way to stay, which is really difficult. And I never apologize for being, I was born in Australia and raised in Massachusetts and I wouldn't dream of apologize, apologizing for where I come from. And I, nobody ever expects me to either, you know, they just, I feel like it's, it's great that there are people who've been here for many generations and it's, uh, it's fine that travelers come up here and try to find a way to make a living and it's hard to do. And I, um, I have a lot of respect for the people who try to do that. It's, I think part of the reason for Burlington's very rapid growth in the tech sector, which is something that a lot of cities and towns of Burlington size have been trying to achieve and it's happening yeah. in Burlington is because people want to live here and they they're willing to um, accept some higher cost of living and some higher taxes and regulation in order to keep their company in Vermont and to try and help their employees move to Vermont. So that's kind of one of the nice ways that the Vermont idea and the Vermont mythology is kind of, it's kind of working out for Vermont. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. Jake, there's so many people like that. I agree. That is one part of uh, the, the brand or the tourism and economy that I do appreciate is how it can attract, attract people. Um, and there was something else you said, Anne. And I'm sorry, I lost my thought. Um, Emily, anything else you want to add? Or if not, I'd love to switch to short-term rentals. Um, I just want to sort of really agree with you, Anne, except for if you ever run for office, trust me, someone will want you to apologize for not being born here. But um, I, you know, I think that's a really powerful part of how Vermont is capable of change and um, evolving and having new ideas and new humans. And that's how people get here is visiting once and wanting to stay. And all that, all that we're able to offer to the people who live here because of this sort of false density that's created from tourists mm -hmm. coming in. And I appreciate all of those things. I, I think that there sometimes is a danger of people coming here with sort of the story of trademark Vermont and then living here and being able to exist in a bubble um, to a degree that they never actually realize what's happening um, for mm -hmm. their neighbors. And that's true all over the country that people are living in their own bubbles. Mm -hmm. But it's an interesting sort of part of when there's a big flood of folks here like is happening now um, or what happened in the 60s with sort of like, you know, the hippies were able to stay in their own hippie bubble for the most part and not really fully integrate. It creates, um, a lot of cultural upheaval, which is for, you know, good and not, and is just what happens. It's an interesting piece of it though. I also think, and this I think will really inform our short-term rental conversation. What's fascinating to me, I think, and is probably much truer in the ski areas or say a Manchester or Woodstock, places that are even more touristy than Brattleboro, um, is the degree to which folks who are tourists or second, you know, um, long-term tourists, you know, non-primary homeowners think that they have a political voice here and manage mm -hmm. to get a political voice here. And it's really interesting talking to my colleagues about it. I'm like, they can't vote for you by definition. They cannot vote for you. You have to be a resident to vote. If they, you know, and 
it's a really interesting dynamic about sort of how folks who are not full-time residents here are able to get um, a political handle because mm -hmm. of their economic power. Um, interesting, yes, very good point, Emily. And it comes from people, you know, even when I first ran for, when I first ran for office, not even thinking about tourism, people would say things like, because I'm a property owner, I have sort of, I should have a greater voice or like people just say stuff like that, right? Um, because I pay more taxes. I, it's There's really yeah. like a, a belief inside people's hearts that I think goes fairly unexamined that the more taxes you pay, the more sort of like voting power you should have or the more um, leverage you should have with your legislator. Yes, mm -hmm. I have certainly heard that from second homeowners who are disgruntled about their tax situation and who feel that they should have a bigger voice here. Yeah. <laughs> so let's bring that back to short-term rentals because um, I don't know about both of you, but I have been doing a number of interviews with real estate agents over the past uh, year and a half. And um, this isn't true across Vermont because not every community in Vermont has the extra um, homes to be bought as second homes. Um but especially in Southern Vermont with, with our, our ski area and kind of existing second home um, eat, um, traditions, I keep hearing, oh yeah, second home ownership, second home ownership, short-term rental, short-term rental. Um, they're staying here for COVID and then they're going to turn it into a short-term rental. Like that is a, a theme I keep hearing over and over again. How is it showing up for both of you? I'd love to hear from Anne first. Oh boy, it's been a never-ending story. Even before the pandemic, the short-term, the impact of the short-term rentals on our rental housing market—it's—it's it's unfortunate. Um, I—I mean, it, in a way, it's like Etsy. It's great for people who need to make a living and can turn their apartment or their bedroom into an income source, and um, that is—that's—it's great. You're making a living on your own, but it is very unfortunate for people who want to rent houses and apartments in Vermont that these are now rented out for much more money to people from out of state who are coming for the weekend. It's, um, you know, the, the, the legislature didn't end up passing a, a, a rental registry that would have uh, at least given us an idea of some of what's going on and the impact it's having. But um, some of the individual towns are now taking it upon themselves to hire companies that regulate these things. So if you have a, like Killington is doing this, if you have a short-term rental, you have to register it with the town and pay a fee. And um, eventually if they wanted to, they could do that with regular rentals too. And that would give them at least a handle on what is going on. Um, in Woodstock, one of the things they're doing is they're going to copy and a uh, policy from one of the ski towns out in Montana. Um, I think it's called Big Sky. And they're going to pay people to convert their short-term rentals back to regular rentals. That again is a cumbersome process that not every town can do. And who knows if people will even take them up on it. They haven't even started that policy yet, but they're, they're having a huge impact on the rental market. There's no question. And the short-term rental association is acknowledging that and uh, is, I noticed that uh, they're having a conference in June and I noticed that um, Maura Collins from BHFA, the Vermont Housing Finance Association is actually gonna speak at their conference. So the Vermont Short-Term Rental Owners Association has chosen to sort of 
to own this problem and to say, you know, here's what the problem is and can we figure out a solution to it that doesn't involve everyone having to lose their short-term rentals. Mm-hmm. So I wanna say first, look, I prefer staying in short-term rentals to staying in hotels when I'm traveling. Like I wanna, I wanna name, and I don't think there's anyone that's listening to the show that doesn't know my like basic um, theory on short-term rentals, but I, I understand why people like staying in them. They're, for me, it's like, more private and cozier for the most part. Um, I really love making my own toast in the morning and not Ooh. having to talk to a stranger about toast. Like, I love that. I hate talking to a stranger before I've had some caffeine and some toast. So, yep. Or, or they're great like, for families too, because hotels yeah. will have, right, you know, yes. how no, many kids like, can be in a room and all that stuff. There was a real need and desire in the market that was fulfilled by Airbnb. And I don't want to pretend there isn't. And there are some folks throughout Vermont who, you know, um, folks who have basically emptied out the family home and can't find another place to move. Um, Folks with an apartment and an extra room who really need some extra income. There's a lot of folks who are doing that, you know, um, I think especially at the beginning of the short-term rental boom who were using it as a way of sort of just being able to stay in their own homes. At this point, I think there's enough research that that's the minimum of the folks who are doing that. Um, In New York right now, there was just a study that a quarter of rentals have now become short-term rentals. Um, And New York has had a number of proposals for a pied-à-terre tax, which I have like no French inside my mouth to pronounce that properly, but, which is essentially a separate tax on vacant units um, of which a short-term rental would count. Where I get, I get stuck in sort of two different places here. One, it's a hospitality business. Why not just regulate it as a hospitality business for the most part? Um, There's, you know, we have, Vermont has developed like a fairly significant regulatory regime that protects the brand of Vermont by ensuring that people who come here to stay have, you know, health and safety codes and all of those things. Um, And so why not sort of expand that regulatory regime to other hospitality businesses, which is what short-term rentals are. Um, And then the other piece, which was fascinating to me, and I think is a big interesting part of our second home boom, is when I introduced um, H200 last session, in order to um, regulate short-term rentals the way hotels are, which I, full disclosure, introduced as a way of sort of, you know, starting a conversation and then being able to just get the short-term rental registry through. It was not like, I didn't really think it was gonna pass. But um, (laughs) I received hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of emails from short-term rental owners all over the state who received you know, really intense um, scare tactic emails from VRBO and Airbnb. Mm -hmm. And they all wrote to me these very extreme emails, um, remembering again that none of these folks vote in Vermont for the most part. And what so many of those emails were about was that I took out a second mortgage or I took out a mortgage for this property dependent on this short-term rental income that that was a business plan that someone had developed and gone into. And that if I, if I personally, cause you know, I have, I am the master of the legislative universe. <laughs> if I personally 
expand short-term rentals, I would be, they would be sort of belly up on their mortgages, um, that they would be over leveraged. And that sort of boggled my mind. First of all, like I absolutely like that is not, that does not feel like my concern for the most part. My concern is having, making sure that Vermonters have enough housing to live in, but that there was sort of that transparency that these are like, these are businesses and business plans that people are going into yeah. and that that's how this is happening, which is a fine enough thing, but we're not talking about it that way. We're talking about it as if this is something that people are doing to get like a little extra money so they can stay in their homes. And that sort of difference of the two stories or even that these are sort of existing second homes that families have had for generations and that they're renting out now so that they don't stay vacant. Mm -hmm. But those were not, I was not hearing from those people. I was hearing from people who had taken on debt in order to do this specifically. It's interesting. Um, it's, it's, from what we've seen, those big investors haven't moved in and started buying apartment blocks in Burlington yet um, to, so that it is, it does seem to be mostly individuals who are doing this. Yes. But, um, you know, I think that the regulation that you're talking about, it seems as though that is coming down the road. I mean, it's, it's, it might not be able to, it might not be something the state does, but my, my impression is that um, if towns like Killington think that it's worth doing it, mm -hmm. um, that other towns can just buy one of these services and, or maybe all use the same service, I don't know, and, and start doing that regulation on their own. Because right, I mean that they're not subject to the same regs that, or they're certainly not inspected for the same regs that the hotels and other, you know, the traditional accommodations are. It's it's just that it's a very new industry. It's really interesting to hear about that lobbying from VRBO yeah. and Airbnb. Um, yeah, very much I, so. I, too, and they're very different with me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and the, you know, the Vermont, um, sort of the Vermont Grassroots Short-Term Rental Alliance, which um, with a little bit of digging is um, supported by Airbnb and VRBO um, and by their lobbyists. It, in their defense, they didn't just invite Maura Collins, they actually invited me for their last two sessions um, to speak. And so they do seem to want to have um, conversations about sort of the full spectrum of what um, the political conversation around this stuff might be. It's hard. Uh, oh, I was just going to say, I have to jump in and say we have a few more minutes. So I wanted to give the last few minutes to Anne. Oh, um, I was just going to say that it is, it's smart of them to do that because in Burlington, this is becoming a life or death issue. I mean, it is all over the state. There's the housing crisis is, is real. Um, it's nobody's fault exactly. It's many, just many, many factors go into it. But in Burlington, there's people who are accepting jobs and that aren't able to take that job because they can't find a place to live. And again, that's happening all over the state too, but it's happening, you know, and it's just kind of like become a human rights issue in Burlington where, because uh, the housing crisis there is so stark and because the short-term rentals play such a, an obvious role, mm -hmm. it's, it's it's really kind of tragic the way that people who want to live in Vermont or who want to live near their family or who got a job here and are trying to live here can't do it. Um, it's that's a it's it's not the fault of short term rentals. It's not the fault of construction prices. It's kind of a, the whole way our economy has been evolving has just kind of gotten really screwy, and this is one of the consequences of it. But it's it's a 
it's definitely a human rights issue and for sure short-term rentals are playing a part in that. I'm glad you're going to be at that conference, Emily. I'll talk to you. Oh, I wasn't invited this year. I was invited all the past years. Oh. So I I was actually, I'm planning on maybe crashing it with a couple of colleagues. <laughs> well, Ann Wallace Allen from Seven Days, thank you so much for joining us uh, this week. Remind me, um, Seven Days uh, website, sevendaysvt.com and we just actually put out our tourism issue it's our summer preview this week which is yesterday the paper comes out on wednesday so lots of tourism. so we can find that online as well and yeah. emily if people want to find more information on you folks can go to emilykornheiser.org and get links to all the different ways to get in touch with me and would love to have a conversation and as always, you can find the Montpelier Happy Hour at WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find it on Brattleboro Community Television. We thank them for their support and wherever you find your podcasts. You can also drop us a message at our Facebook page, the Montpelier Happy Hour. So everyone have a wonderful weekend.